Hello, and welcome to MGMA Small Talk, where we discuss issues facing practice administrators across the healthcare world. I'm Shannon Geis, staff writer and editor at MGMA, and today I'm speaking with Will Latham, who is the president of Latham Consulting Group. Latham has more than 25 years' experience working with medical groups to help them make decisions, resolve conflict, and move forward. He has helped hundreds of medical groups develop strategic plans and has advised and facilitated the mergers of more than 135 medical practices. Will is here with us today to talk about strategic planning and why it is so important. Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, so first, Will, if you can just tell us a little bit more about your background and your um, personal experience in strategic planning and governance. Great. Well, I've, uh, I've worked almost exclusively with medical groups, uh, as you mentioned, for over 25 years now. And about 50% of my work is facilitating strategic planning processes for medical groups. Uh, the rest of the time, I spend either helping groups with mergers, uh, occasionally compensation system projects, and also a lot of work with governance. In fact, governance is involved in most of the projects I, I work on because in, sometimes in planning, people want to talk about governance. Quite often in mergers, they want to talk about governance. And over that time, I, I actually sat down and ended up one day, I, I facilitated over 900 meetings and retreats. So I've had a lot of experience in this area. Wow. Yeah. Um, so why do you think that strategic planning is so, is so important, uh, specifically for medical groups? Uh, that, you know, what I find is about 99% of most physicians, clinical work is in their practice. And in many cases, 9900% of their economic uh, abilities or, or, or generation is in a practice. And yet they won't spend a couple of days a year sort of mapping out what they want to do collectively. And I think that collectively is the key thing. You know, although physicians are wired to be autonomous and much of their clinical work is done individually, really to be successful today, you know, in a medical group, you have to collaborate with others in your group. And that involves talking with them, talking about different options, and then together reaching a conclusion about how the organization is going to move forward. That's, you know, typically an individual physician has in a group has trouble moving forward unless the whole group sort of agrees upon what they're going to do collectively. So that's why I, I think that whole planning process is so important. Yeah. Um, with the increase in integration and, and mergers uh, in, the, in recent years, what are some of the things that administrators should be really thinking about when they're, they're doing their strategic planning? Even if they're independent still, what are some of the things that they should be looking for um, in the future? Sure. You know, a lot of groups you know, are considering selling their practice to investors, or doing deals with private equity or, or possibly linking up with their hospital. You know, you go back 10 years ago, and whenever I'd ask at a, at a planning retreat, what's your plans about being independent, everyone would say, well, we're going to be independent to the day we die. And now when I ask that question, people will say, well, we want to be independent as long as we can afford it. So it's really, you know, it's sort of a change in thinking. Um, so I think that one of the first questions as part of any planning process is to talk about whether the group wants to maintain some level of independence. And I, I think that the way people really ought to think about it is, is it's, it's sort of who do you want leading your organization? Who do you want to put your, you know, your future, whose hands do you want to put your future in? Do you want it to be in the hands of a stock guy? Uh, do you want it to be in the hands of a hospital guy? Or do you want it to be, you know, in the hands of another physician? especially as groups get bigger and you have to develop some sort of governance structure to deal with group size. So P 
people these days seem to be getting all excited about the money being thrown around by the firm's acquiring practice, especially those people who are nearing retirement mm-hmm. because they, they only have a few more years to practice. They, they see this, this beautiful little jewel hanging out there. They get all excited. But there are you know, many, many downsides to, to go into a place where you sell your practice or you become an employee. And I can spend lots of time talking about the challenges associated with that. On the other hand, uh, one of the few ways that groups can strengthen their position is to look at mergers because the, you know, the, the external world is, is a somewhat threatening place for position practices. There are also lots of opportunities out there that practices can pursue, but it's difficult to pursue as a smaller practice or a smaller organization. So I think that level of independence, you know, there's, there's sort of two ways to go. One is to go to the employment mode, hoping that somebody will sort of take care of you. And the other is to say, no, we, you know, we, we want to take care of ourselves. We, we want to have some level of autonomy. And so how can we best strengthen ourselves, you know, while at the same time trying to continue to have some level of independence? Sure. Um, and um, with those two different um, routes that you can go, what are maybe some of the, the most important pros and cons of either? Um, you know, if, if a practice is, cons- is trying to figure out which way they want to be going. Sure, sure. Well, the, you know, the, the challenge of, of independent practice, of course, is you, you have to be able to, uh, in a way, kind of control yourself. You have to be able to make decisions. You have to, to get a group of people together to, you know, make a decision about how they want the organization to move forward. And that's, that's a real challenge for many medical groups. You know, many medical groups is a situation where, the feeling is, is we're all equal partners. We all have an equal say. And then, unfortunately, some groups get into a position that says, well, unless we all agree, we're just going to sort of stand still. And, and, and of course, in today's world, standing still, you know, it's like the old saying, you can be on the right track, but if you stand still, you're going to get run over. Mm-hmm. So, so there's the challenge sort of of self-control within medical practices. There's also the the issue of, of capital. Some groups need to do things, want to accomplish things, and it's difficult to do to get the physicians to leave money on the table or invest in the growth of the practice. Um, but on the other side, one of the great things about continuing to be an independent practice is you are really the one that gets to make the choices about how your practice is structured, how you're going to you know, organize the practice, run the practice, even, even in a larger group. I mean, sometimes people will say, well, gosh, I'm in this large group. And uh, I, I just feel like an employee anyway. I don't have any control anyway. But you, you do have the control of electing the leadership. And that's, that's very different from being in an employed situation. You know, in an employed situation, uh, whether it's an investor buying you or it's a hospital employing you, you know, they, they will tell you uh, that, hey, the great thing about this is, is that you don't have to worry about all this business stuff anymore, all this administrative stuff anymore. Uh, we'll take care of that. All you get to do is, you know, practice medicine, do the thing that you love and that you want to be involved in. And the, the reality of it is, is you know, once you stop advocating for yourself, uh, people will take advantage of you. And I think many groups have found that have become, for example, hospital employees or employed by these organizations is after the first contract period, the whole name of the game sort of changes in terms of what they're able to put in place, or they have an inability to get the hospital to do anything they want because 
you know, now they're employees and they can be, you know, sort of hired and fired at will by the by the hospital system. In fact, one of the biggest negatives for medical groups is is once they go into an employed situation, once again, either purchased by an organization or uh, employed by a hospital, is that it's really sort of hard for an individual physician to sort of stand up and and push back against something that's being either done to the group or not done for the group uh, that's important because, frankly, the hospital or the employee, you know, uh, company, employing company, you know, can terminate that physician, just say, you know, you're just too much trouble. You're, you're out the door. Uh, while, and so the question is, who's going to stand up for that physician? Well, probably nobody because everybody's an independent employee and frankly, um, you know, they, they don't want to move. They, they, their spouse doesn't want to move. So they, they are not so quick to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute. Uh, you know, this is not appropriate. This is not correct, Where you, which is something you can do if you're still your own bona fide group. You're still your own separate group. You can do that. Mm-hmm. And then I think the last thing is, is, is you know, sort of a – I mean, there, once again, I could go through a lot of other challenges and negatives associated with employment or being bought, but – you know, the last one is just sort of that dream that somebody else out there will take care of you. And I, I just, you know, big organizations don't always operate as well as smaller, more nimble organizations do. So I think there's a lot of good reasons to stay independent, um, even in today's challenging environment. Um, so when a practice is getting into the planning process and and trying to lay out their strategy for the future, who should really be involved in that process? Um, who are the yeah. the people that a practice should make sure are, are at the table? Okay. You know, of course, the administrator should be there because they're usually the one, you know, probably focusing more on the, the organization, the business than anybody else is in the organization. Of course, the shareholder physicians, because they're the owners and are the decision makers. Uh, often they, groups will have their shareholder track physicians join the meeting um, for at least part of it to, because they're sort of the future of the group. Occasionally, groups will bring in their advisors, sometimes their CPA, or or if they're considering a certain project, they might bring someone in who's an expert on that to talk about it uh, for at least a segment of the the, uh, the process. But I, I do recommend uh, two things about a, attendees. One is is to try to keep the attendees somewhat to a minimum. In other words, I think the administrator should be there, but not a lot of the next level staff, or not a lot, not a lot of, not really, you know, not the mid level providers. And the reason is is that sometimes if there's kind of an audience, you know, a number of people that are sitting listening to this, you know, the advantage is they get to hear what the physicians are talking about and get an idea of what's in their mind. But the disadvantage is, is that sometimes people sort of uh, begin to speak not as honestly as they might if it was just the physicians in the room. So I tend to suggest keeping, uh, you know, having a fewer number there beyond the shareholder physicians and the administrator than many more. And then the second is, is you know, it's hard sometimes to get everybody together at the same time. And every group has its challenging personalities. And there's often sort of a desire, well, let's plan the meeting when uh, Dr. X can't be there because we know how he or she is. But I really believe that you need to have the meetings. You need to make sure the challengers or the naysayers or the people that are not enthusiastic about all things that practice are at the meeting because if they're not, uh, then they'll use that as an excuse to possibly not, you know, be a part of the team and help implement what's decided at that meeting. Uh, so what do you think some of the biggest obstacles um, to the actual uh, process of planning um, 
what are what are those obstacles? What are those biggest challenges that um, practice uh, practices and administrators might be dealing with in trying to plan? Sure, I think um, you know one is is sort of the willingness to invest the time and the money in the process. I mean, usually this involves some extended period of, of hours of meeting. Uh, most of the groups that I work with meet on a weekend. They don't want to close the practice to, uh, to conduct the retreat. And it's usually a day, day and a half, sometimes two, two days of meetings, depending on the number of issues that they need to be involved with. Uh, they, they need a facility to have those locations. That's not usually a gigantic cost, but I, I do recommend that groups meet outside of their practice location because it's very difficult in the meeting itself, when you take a break, everybody runs back to their office, and then it takes you 30 minutes to pull everybody back together again to to start meeting again. Um, and and then you know other parts of the money is is you know sometimes groups will use somebody externally to help support the process, and that involves some upfront data gathering uh, that the group can do itself, or they can use the external person to do that. So I think that's part of it, just the investing the time and money in the process. Sure. But the other is is uh, sort of the, the feeling that, gosh, well, we get together and we have these meetings and we never implement what we plan. Mm. And that's, uh, you know, I especially see this when, once again when groups have come together before. And I think the reason for that is something I speak about a lot when I make presentations on governance or, or planning. And that is, as many groups, you know, in, in an individual physician's mind – uh, the thought process goes something like this. You know, if I didn't vote for it or I don't agree with it, I don't have to do it or support it. I, I call it the dirty little secret. If I didn't vote for it or I don't have to, um, you know, I, I don't agree with it, I don't have to do it or I don't have to support it. And so what happens is is these groups get together, they have these retreats, they talk about things, they may even think they've made decisions, Um and, you know, people may not speak up against it at the meeting itself, but then later uh, they walk right out of the room and people start either not supporting the decisions or uh, they do you know, counter to the decisions or they don't implement the things that are there. And the reason for that is they haven't come to a full agreement about what it means when the group makes a decision. And so I think every group, you know, a lot of every group needs to ask and answer three questions. I do this at the, a lot of the beginning of the retreats I facilitate. I ask them three questions. The first question is, is how's the group going to make decision? And basically, most groups say, well, we're going to talk about something, and then we're going to vote. And the second question is, as well, once you've made a decision in an agreed upon way, what's expected of each physician? And the answer that to that should be, well, we support it, we agree it, we, we do it, we don't sabotage it. You know, we don't go around complaining to our staff or the hospital administration about a, what a bunch of idiots the rest of our partners are for making this decision. We, you know, we we do it. And then the third question is, is well, so if a physician still doesn't like the decision, what are their choices? And there should be only three. The first choice is, is do it anyway. That's group practice. You know, if you, if I always tell, joke with people, if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. You don't always get your way. The second is is try to get it changed in the appropriate forum, meaning bring it back to the group for a rediscussion, but keep supporting it until such time it is changed. In other words, you don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card because uh, you don't like the idea, and until it's like talked about four or five times, you don't have to be a part of it. You have, you have to keep supporting it you know, until such time it's changed. And then the third one, and this is where the rubber sort of meets the road. The third one is is – Commit to leaving the group if you don't support group decisions. In other words, self-select yourself out of the group. 
And the, and the thought behind that is, is what you're, what I'm trying to do when I work with groups is get the physicians to commit to not staying with a group that they don't support group decisions. They, they, they want other people to support the things they want. It should be, you know, the other way. Every, they should, the same expectation should be for them. So to me, at the beginning of meetings, quite often we'll run through those questions and I'll ask and, and they'll answer those. And the whole goal is get them to commit to say, we're going to wrestle with things, but when we make a decision, we all agree to support that decision into the future. In fact, what, years ago, um, I started off a group meeting in this way, and uh, we got through that process, those three questions. And so one of the physicians looks at me and he goes, he goes, let me get this straight. We're here. We're going to make decisions today. And I said, uh, yes, that's why you're here. And he said, and we're really going to do the things we decide. And I said, yes, you've just committed to do that. And he said, well, I guess I'm going to have to pay a lot more attention to this retreat than I ever had before. And, and the reason he said that was, was he knew in their earlier retreats that they would talk about a lot of things, but they weren't going to implement them because they didn't have an agreement that once they made a decision. So to me, this is a very powerful thing that groups need to do to really move forward on almost any issue. So they're not just pretending to make decisions. They really are making decisions. Yeah, that's, that's really great um, advice. Um, and I think one of the things that um, a lot of our listeners in particular might be uh, interested in learning more about is what can administrators do to convince providers that they of the need for planning? Because I think there is oftentimes um, a struggle there. Sure. There's, there's always, quite often there is resistance. Uh, you know, I, I think there are a couple of things that, um, you know, I've seen groups do. One is, you know, you need a champion. You need a physician to say, uh, you know, we need to, to do this, uh, try to logic them into it from the standpoint of, um, uh, you know, they're the reading and their, and the information and all the challenges they have. Somebody, one of the physicians in the group or a couple of them to say, yes, this is something we really need to do. Another is just a plea for help. I mean, a lot of times, you know, what do administrators want to do? Well, they want to implement the group plan. Uh, they don't want to implement Dr. A's plan or Dr. B's plan. They want to implement the group's plan. And they recognize their positions could be at risk if they go down a certain path. And that's not been something the group has discussed uh, and, and agreed upon. So sometimes it's just a plea for uh, direction from the administrator. I think another area when I've done uh, programs on this topic, I've asked people how they were able to convince their groups to do it. And a couple of times I've heard a similar story, which is they, they try to find other groups in their community uh, where they that have gone through strategic planning processes and they try to link up some of their positions with the positions of the other group to, to let the other physicians and the other group give them feedback about, you know, what the process was all about and the benefit they derived. And that, that has seemed to be one of the more effective things you can do is, once again, link your physicians up with physicians in another practice that's gone through a, a successful strategic planning process. So what are some of the ways that um, you can make strategic planning more approachable? Or I, I think that um, for, for many, it might feel like this big sort of vague thing, how do we do this? How do we break it in, uh, down in a way that is actually manageable? Right. Well, I think one way is to actually drop a lot of the buzzwords that are used in strategic planning. A lot of people are sort of turned off by that. In fact, you know, sometimes when I'm working with groups, the word strategic is never even mentioned. We'll talk about them having a planning meeting or a future directions conference or something that's a, just a little less quote-unquote business-oriented than strategic planning is. 
I think another piece of it is is you you just need to have a a a process that's planned out that involves gathering data, you know, developing the the the, the work papers that will support the retreat, uh, conducting the retreat itself, and then some follow up process that says, you know, here's what we decided to do. Now let's put into place a way to, uh, you know, to track it. And then I think a third thing is to let them know, let the physicians know that this plan, the planning sessions typically are not kumbaya sessions. You know, a lot of people hear the word planning retreat or, you know, going off somewhere and they think about, you know, lighted candles and, and uh, incense and that kind of, and that's, that's not at all what planning retreats are about. I mean, sometimes groups want to include some sort of team building or, um, uh, something that, that that it helps the group work better together uh in the meetings but most most meetings are set up to you know they have a clear business purpose uh and it's about identifying the issues that the practice needs to talk about work through and resolve and coming up with a conclusion as to how the group is going to move forward so once again some of some physicians just you know they kind of feel like it's going to be some sort of touchy feely group hug type thing and Sure. I, you know, I don't do group hug in my retreats. <laughs> you know, if they want to, if they want to hug, that's fine. But I, you know, I, I'll take a picture of it. But uh, I, I, I just think that makes people nervous, and so you're just trying to cut down on that nervousness. Sure. Um, and then, uh, do you have any specific tips for making these meetings uh, more productive, productive for the entire team? Sure. I, I think two things um, are most important. One is is you need some ground rules at the beginning of the meeting. Uh, if you've ever, I mean, I, I would imagine most people listening to this, of course, attend their groups for meetings. And, you know, I quite often ask groups I speak to, do you ever have a situation where everybody's talking at once and everybody sort of chuckles because that's what happens. P- things come into people's mind and, you know, it, they got to get it out right away. So, the first thing is is to agree upon some some ground rules. For example, you know, one person speaks and everyone else listens. You know, or or you know, remember we're here to work towards solutions, not just to argue. Or let's not have any sidebar discussions where people are talking to each other while somebody else is talking. So a set of ground rules uh, can be very helpful to remind people of how to behave. But I think the other piece of it is is making a decision as who's going to serve as the meeting manager. So if you're going to use an external person, you know, someone is the work I do a lot of, that's their job. Their job is to to you know enforce the ground rules, to move the meeting along, to to you know, there's somebody in the group. I, I call it playing the meanie, and the meanie is is there's somebody in the group that likes to dominate the conversation. You have to get them to let other people share their thoughts. And in the same way, if somebody just wants to sit back and listen the whole day and not participate, your job is to call on them and ask them to speak. Uh, speak. So, so someone – and so if the group is, is doing the retreat on their own, then you know, either the manager or a physician needs to serve as meeting manager. And their job is to, is to enforce the ground rules, keep the discussion on track, prevent a relevant debate. You know, people go – often are talking about their ski trip to France, you know, bring them back into talking about a new satellite location, um, and, and, and then push the group to reach, uh, reach conclusions. I think that's – it depends on the group. In some groups, uh, the manager is in a position where they can do that uh, with no problem. Mm-hmm. In other situations, uh, you know, especially where, uh, you know, one of the participants has said the same thing 15 times, it's kind of hard to tell your boss um, – 
you know, Dr. Jones, we've heard you 15 times. Let's move on to someone else, you know, if you're the administrator, because that could be a career-limiting move in some cases. So I tend to think a physician's probably in a better position to serve as a meeting manager. But that's the mo- you know, those are the two most important things, ground rules and then someone whose job it is to, you know, to, to keep people from just talking endlessly and not actually reaching conclusions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what do you see as some of the challenges ahead for medical groups that – um, would maybe benefit them if they did some strategic planning? Sure. I mean, there, there are a lot of threats out there for medical groups, but there's also a lot of opportunity. Um, some of the threats relate to new payment mechanisms. Everybody's talking about moving from volume to value, and, and we're all still trying to figure out exactly what that means. Um, there seems to be a continuous stream of governmental requirements. Um, the technology is changing. You know, those those are the kind of things that groups need to consider. But there are also opportunities. There are, there are new services uh, that can be provided, new locations that groups want to get involved with, new um, uh, new relationships that people can can take advantage of. There's there's also internal challenges to deal with. I mean, many times groups need to talk about how they are structured from a governance perspective, and and then there's the one that everyone loves to talk about, which is compensation systems. Um, and, I, you know, the joke always is, is every group has three compensation systems, the one they used to be on, the one they're on now, and the one they're going to. And so sometimes there is a discussion uh, of compensation in group meetings. I will say this. In most situations, you can't begin talking about a compensation system change and and then actually implement it in one meeting because it needs a, a longer, broader process typically to, to to deal with the issues associated with it, but sometimes groups use these discussions to decide whether to initiate a project on compensation or not. Um, I think one of the key challenges, though, and one of the one of the key benefits is uh, is just a challenge is not expecting someone else to take care of problems for you. You know, I mean, once again, I go back to what our first uh, comments were. You know, even if you sell out uh, to someone else, you have to stay involved, or you're going to get run over. And you may be, you know, towards the end of the, your career, you don't really care so much about that anymore. But anybody who's new or midway through their career, um, you just have to be really careful about tying your your future to someone who will not have, you know, your interest in heart the same way you do uh, and will tell you that, hey, it's all going to be okay. Just just let us take care of it because it, it, it history has shown that they don't typically do that. So. I just think groups have to be careful about saying we've got these challenges that we have to deal with. And we just go and somebody else takes care of us. We want to deal with these challenges. Well, if you don't, one day you wake up and you find out that they're not taking care of those challenges either. And you're the one being impacted and now you can't do anything about it. So I think once again, to me, um, you know, being in, independent results in some responsibility and the response one of the responsibilities is to get together and collectively decide where you want to take the organization in the future and and that's what strategic planning is all about well thank you so much will for taking the time to talk with us today i really appreciate it um for more information about strategic planning check out our episode page at mgma.org slash podcasts